You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and thank you for joining us for this next installment of our interview series. Today, the editor of Angelus Press, James Vogel, will be speaking with St. Thomas Aquinas Seminary Professor and frequent guest on this podcast, Father Alexander Wiseman. The topic? The book that Father Wiseman just translated called The Courage to be Afraid. This book was originally authored by Father Marie-Dominique Molinier, and thanks to Father Wiseman's efforts, it is now available for the first time in English. What was it about this book that prompted Father Wiseman to translate it? Why did Angelus Press want to publish this relatively obscure book? And what can it teach us today? Mr. Vogel and Father Wiseman will discuss all of this next. If you want to catch up on some of the other interviews we've done, please head over to sspxpodcast.com. There you can find all of our interviews as well as our Questions with Father series, and you can help to support us as well so we can continue this work. Now, here's Mr. Vogel and Father Wiseman. Hi, this is James Vogel, the Editor-in-Chief at Angelus Press, and today we're honored to have Father Alexander Wiseman with us. Um, He recently translated one of our newest books, The Courage to be Afraid. He's going to tell us the story about how this book came to be. But to introduce Father, uh, Father was born in New York, New York. He earned his degree from St. Thomas Aquinas College before entering St. Thomas Aquinas Seminary, where he was ordained in 2013. He taught at St. Mary's Academy and College. Uh, He assisted the U.S. District Education uh, Department for for a number of years, and he's now a professor at the same St. Thomas Aquinas Seminary where he teaches philosophy and theology. So thank you for coming, Father. We we took advantage of him being in town for uh, other work reasons to steal him for this podcast. So um, I have a lot of stories about this book. It's certainly one of the most unique projects I've ever worked on, but... How did this? How are we sitting here with yeah. this book, Father? Yeah, it's a good where, question. Where do, where do we start? So you, you got to kind of rewind the clock um, about four years. So this book, in French, obviously the original language was recommended to me by Father Leroux, mm-hmm. who's the rector of the seminary, and has been the rector for a number of years now. And it was, I think, right before I went on my retreat. So I, mm-hmm. every priest does a yearly retreat. I was doing my retreat that year with the future ordinands, so okay. it was probably in June, I think, was, was, the, was the time period. But Father Leroux gave me this book, and he said, I think you'll like this. It's really well done. Mm-hmm. And I actually read the book cover to cover during the retreat, and I was so impressed with it that I came back and talked to Father Leroux about it, and I, I told him, I, I think I want to translate this book. Mm-hmm. Do you know if it, if it exists in English? And the reason I wanted to translate it was, first of all, I knew that if I did that, I would get to know the book even better. But secondly, there were people that I was thinking about that I thought, boy, these people could really get something out of this. And if I have like just a, um, even a rough translation of a few chapters, it would be something that might be helpful. I could send it to them or seminarians Mm -hmm. I could recommend. Um, You know, we we have to do spiritual direction at the seminary. I could recommend, hey, read this chapter. And so I, I, I read it, I, and Father Rue said, well, yeah, that'd probably be a good project for you. You can just do it on the side when you have time. And I started doing it. I think I got maybe a couple of chapters in, and then it kind of ground to a halt because uh, life happens and <laughs> everything. And then I, it was almost another year before I picked it up again, and okay. I took the book with me again on my other retreat because I got so much out of it the first time. 
And when I read it again on the retreat or parts of it, I thought I have to keep translating. I mm. just have to keep going. Um, and then the, the funny thing that happened was I got about <clears throat> probably about 50 or 60% through the book. And I happened to be um, in Post Falls where my family live right now. And I was just paying a visit to the Carmelites. Mm -hmm. And I happened to mention um, to the Carmelites that, you know, they said something. And I said, well, that kind of reminds me of a book that I'm translating. It's called The Courage to Be Afraid. And <laughs> one of the Carmelites said, you have to finish translating that book because we know this book and we want this book uh, to be translated for us. It's been so helpful. I think Mother at the Carmel knew about it in French. So they really encouraged me to finish and even to think about publishing it. And that was kind of the first time okay. that I thought, well, maybe it could be published, you know? Yeah, I have to say that it was interesting to me, uh, so one, to note, this was not meant originally to be an Angelus Press title. We did not start with that in mind. It, no, it, no, it, it, that, that came quite a bit later. It did, and the funny thing, though, is that Father, you at some point had finished the translation and you had shared it with a few people, and it's the only time I've ever seen what I would call like a speakeasy version of a translation where people would kind <laughs> yeah. of whisper like, hey, yeah. do, you have a, yeah. do you have the English copy of The Courage <laughs> yeah. to be Afraid? And um, it's true. It was kind of being passed around surreptitiously. Yeah. And yeah. Um, that is one of the reasons at some point, like, well, if there are priests and people who think this should be published and sisters, then maybe we should talk about it. But let's, let's jump into like what makes this book unique, right? Because there's lots of books on the spiritual life. Uh, this is not a book about the crisis in the church. It's not a book about no. Vatican II. This is really about the eternal thing. So, um, what? Yeah. What would? You, how would you describe this book to somebody? Yeah, and I think actually, give the sales pitch. It's 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 a <laughs> difficult book to describe because, yeah. first of all, uh, you know, you, you noted this when we when we talked a little bit about it too that it's not it's not even set up in chapters. He kind of sets it up as. There's a, there's a theme that mm -hmm. the book begins with. Um, I've translated it, let God act, uh, laissez-vous faire in French. It's, it's a hard phrase to translate. But then the rest of the chapters, are he calls them variations, variations on a theme, just like mm -hmm. music. And it, it originated as a, um, a retreat that he gave to Dominican nuns in France. And then I think the notes evolved from there. He edited them. He must okay. have been passing them around to some people he knew. And then eventually he published it as a book in 1975. But to get back to your question, I think what he manages to do in this book that I haven't seen as well done elsewhere is that he is speaking to us in the modern world, but about the doctrine that's perennial. And okay. so he will cite uh, authors such as John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, they speak about what happens in the spiritual life. They speak about the role of God in okay. our, our growth in grace and charity. They speak about the role of the soul. It's John of the Cross, the famous uh, night of the, mm -hmm. of the senses, you know, dark night of mm -hmm. the soul, and so on. But he's, Father Molinier is able to bring that to us in language that somehow we kind of understand. And I think it's a little bit, he has a phrase there, I'm going to paraphrase, I don't remember exactly how he, how he does it, but he says, um, you know, we're a generation that has been traumatized by so many shocks that the people who came before us don't understand us, and we don't understand them. And I don't think he's saying there that, you know, yeah. Teresa of Avila wouldn't understand us, she would, but sure. I think what he's saying is there's, 
there's um, it, we have a difficulty that we have a kind of weakness today and a difficulty today because of the crisis in the world and the church that it's hard for us sometimes to really understand uh, these these um, men and women of the past who have lived these saintly lives. And he's not saying don't read them. He is. But he's trying to kind of bridge a gap and speak to us heart to heart about, look, this is the gospel. This is what the gospel says. And what these people, the saints, have been saying all this time, and even the saints now, they mm. all say the same thing, and this is what it is. And so because of his uh, the, the language, he's able, I think, to communicate better to us. He seems to understand a little bit the difficulty we face today. And then I think the other reason it's, it's interesting is that he has a kind of forcefulness and simplicity in the way he presents things. So he's not afraid to say, this is the way it is. This is what the truth is. And unless we do this, unless God intervenes in this way, we have, we have nothing. We cannot move forward. And so for those two reasons, I would identify those as the, the reason. What makes this book unique is that the, the language in which he's communicating to us is something that somehow we're a bit more familiar with. It speaks to us. And to use maybe overused sure. phrase, but sure. it speaks to us. Um, I've seen that time and again with some people sure. who have read the book. And then also because he, he says it very forcefully and very clearly. And maybe one other thing I could say there what he says very forcefully and clearly again and again is that we we have to rely on the grace of god we have to rely on god alone and that's why christ came so he's he's a kind of sworn enemy of naturalism okay and we know pius x says what's the problem of today an all-pervasive naturalism it's it's this idea that we can do it by ourselves that we don't somehow need god's grace and if you say that just you know, just yeah. in words, everybody would agree with you. But when you start to look at our actions and how we go about certain things, Father Melinier is going to kind of uncover that naturalism that's hidden in there. Say, hey, you're doing this, but you're expecting that you're going to save yourself, but you can't save yourself. You know, you have to, you need grace. Mm. So that I think is what I've found very uh, unique about okay. the book. I haven't found that in many other places in, in more modern books. Okay, that that is very helpful, Father. And I wonder if you could speak to. Uh, so, if if you pick up the book, it's it's not a long book. It's a little over two hundred pages, right. right? But it's also not the kind of book that well, you can correct me because I could be wrong. But it's not really the kind of book that you just pick up and read in one evening, cover to cover. You know, no, you're, it's, no. it's not that. It wouldn't kind really of, work that way, right. right? It's almost the kind of book that you you hit a passage and you have to kind of put it down and. And think about it, yes. or you know, yes. even even meditate on it sometimes, because yes. it's not. I don't know if that helps. Uh, if that helps explain something about the book, because if you just see this on the the shelf, um, you know, even if you know it's a, a book about the spiritual life, it's it's unique in that sense too. Um, and I know you mentioned it was originally given as some form of conferences, so and maybe retreat. that explains part of it. But um, people shouldn't expect to just sit down and, and plow through this, right? Right, like, right. How I would you recommend reading to, it? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question, how to read it. Well, um, I first read it on a retreat, okay. and I found that very helpful, but be, I had more time sure. to read and to think. That's not going to be possible for everybody by any means. But I would say um, start reading it, take mm -hmm. it slowly, but also I just want to encourage anybody who would read it to persevere a little bit. Because yeah. 
I the kind of the way I think about the setup of the book is that maybe in the first we could say the theme chapter and then maybe the first four to five variations he's kind of setting himself up okay. he's setting up some language that he's going to use some images that he's going to use he's giving some content to the words he wants to speak about in more detail and then the whole book kind of launches very quickly in variations five and six and when i first read it actually my favorite chapters were the variations six through nine where he starts to talk about what is really the struggle in our life? What is, yeah. What's the battle, as he describes it, between pride and humility, between the spirit of pride and the spirit of childhood? He was a great devotee of St. Therese. Okay. Uh, and so a lot of St. Therese comes through in the book okay. as well. But I would say you might, have to, you might have to persevere through those first few variations to get the background. Even in those first ones, though, I, I have see passages that are very striking. But take it slowly. Okay. Um, sometimes don't be afraid to uh, spend a little bit of time thinking. If you find a particular passage that's very powerful, mm -hmm. it's worth doing a little bit of quiet thinking about it, meditating. Don't want to use a scary word, but uh, meditating <laughs> a little bit on it. It's very rich um, in that regard, too. So it does sound, though, that you do need to read it in order. You can't just pick it up and, and flip to the middle. I, and I would suggest, even though he's got, he's yeah. calls them variations, and you, you know, yeah. you can listen to the Goldberg variations in whatever order sure. you want. Nevertheless, there is an order in which sure. Bach set up the Goldberg variations. So there's That's an order in which um, Father Molinier set this up. And I think he was thinking precisely the model of the retreat is very helpful way to think about this book is that on a retreat what would happen well you would have that first conference where you know uh, the priests know this but maybe the lay people too if you're doing a retreat it's not a nation retreat where the subject mm -hmm. matter is set for you you as the retreat preacher have to decide what are you going to talk about sure. and it's in that first conference that you usually do the reveal like hey this is my subject Got this it. is my theme and so he's doing the same thing in that first okay. chapter he says this is my theme so this is what the retreat's going to be about and then every conference is just a different aspect another point about that but he's doing it in view of an order of building okay. these things and as you go forward in the retreat or in your reading of the book as you go forward, you have more background from him to approach some more difficult topics, maybe, or, or topics that require uh, a bit more thought. So okay. he wants to kind of catch you in the beginning, but then have you be able to go through variation by variation and have them build a little bit on each other. Okay. Uh, can you say anything about the author himself, Father Molinier? Yes. I don't think that's a name that is known, certainly in the English-speaking world. He was a Dominican. Um, but what can you say about him? Yeah, so he's a he's a very interesting um, character. I think he was pretty well known in France, okay, at least at the time. Um, I have his exact dates in the in the preface. I don't mm -hmm. remember exactly when he was born, but he died in I think two thousand two. Okay, and this book was published in nineteen seventy five. The retreat that he gave first was in nineteen fifty three. So remember that yeah. date, but bef well before sure. Vatican two. Um, the reason he's such an interesting figure is because um, he himself had kind of quite the journey to come back to the faith. Okay. And actually, just a side note here, I had a little bit of trouble finding details about his life. There's no biography that exists. He gave a bunch of conferences, some of which I managed to find online in audio format. 
Okay. But poorly recorded conferences, occasional reference to his life. Sure. You know, there were a couple articles that were written about him, but they didn't give too much, too many details. So I, I had to piece a few things together. But basically, as I understand it, he was raised Catholic. He had a very good Catholic education from the school he was in. And then um, when he was very young, I think he mentions 12 years old, he heard a sermon uh, from a priest about hell. And he was so impressed, but maybe in the wrong way, by this sermon. It was so vivid for him that he couldn't reconcile how a good God could create hell and could ever damn anybody eternally Mm -hmm. to this to this place and so he sort of as he said he he gently revolted you know (laughs) in other words i think interiorly there was a movement first and then and then exteriorly it followed and so from from age 16 about he really wasn't practicing catholic at all and he kind of just did whatever whatever he was doing but from the beginning of his life and even through that period he was looking he was searching uh he had definitely an intellectual bent um and he wanted to know he he saw very clearly the difficulty of these questions and he he was wrestling with them and he kind of went all over the place um and then finally ended up coming back to the catholic church becoming a dominican uh, becoming a priest mm, and interesting. um he was a he, so he's a contemplative dominican and i think um when he gave this retreat originally, as I said, it was in 1953. It was just shortly after his ordination, but he had already been kind of um, steeped, I would say, in, yeah. in um, he certainly studied St. Thomas Aquinas, it's clear. He certainly had a great reverence for St. Therese of Lisieux. He certainly read John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, all of these greats in, in, the, in the spiritual life. And so he was really soaked in that when he, when he initially addressed this. When the book came about in 1975, I tried to note that a little bit in the in the preface and the introduction there, but he um, he was kind of found himself at the center of a controversy that is maybe more familiar to us being in this post-Vatican II sure. era, if we can put it that way. And what happened was the uh, Dominican Order in France they have somebody who's in charge called the provincial. He sure. was in charge of all the Dominican convents monasteries in France. And is this that, is that roughly uh, analogous, like a district superior, district superior if you're, yeah. if you're, if yeah. you're like Who used to SSPX yeah. language. Right. Yeah. District superior all right. is the, yeah. uh, is the <laughs> equivalent. Okay. And so he's directing all the, all of those monasteries and convents in France. Sure. And this particular, um, this particular provincial was attempting to implement the changes from Vatican II, especially as regards the religious life. And that involved a, an attempt to update, bring to date religious life. It also involved a tremendous uh, sort of desire for freedom. So if they had, they, they would present to monks it, who had taken their vows already, so p- poverty, chastity, and obedience, they would say to them, do you know, if you don't want to live this life, you, you're free, you can go mm, now. We, well, we, will just, we will just dispense you from the vows. And so there were a bunch of Dominicans who just left and it has happened in many religious sure. orders. And the provincial was really forcing, pushing this. And he wanted conversations about Dominican life, about how can we update Dominican life with, you know, contemplative, sure. what's that mean? We need to be with the people. We sure. need to be doing all these things. And the convent that, uh, monastery, excuse me, that uh, Father Molinier was in, was in Nancy. Okay. And they had a little, there were a little like pocket of resistance hmm. because a number of the old monks got together 
and they said we don't we don't agree with this we don't recognize this and i read in an article uh that was a kind of history of this particular monastery that father Melinier was the one who penned a letter that others signed that they sent not only to the provincial but to the internal document that was mm-hmm. like a circular among the dominicans and i didn't read the whole letter but i i saw excerpts uh, apparently father Melinier was the author okay. and there was one passage that really struck me where he said to the provincial, you know, you want to discuss what the Dominican life is about, but we're past the point of discussion right now. He said, we would love to discuss it. We're past the point because we don't agree about anything. We don't agree about the faith. We don't agree about Jesus Christ. We don't agree about grace. And so the only thing left for us to do is to simply be silent and to love, mm-hmm. just just to, wow. to to live our life. And so there was there was a resistance there that Father Molinier found himself more or less in the middle of, and it's striking because we, you know, as Catholics today, yeah. we see the progress, we feel that, we know what Archbishop Lefebvre suffered, mm-hmm. and I think in some way Father Molinier suffered a lot from that too. It's, it's unclear how much to me. It's unclear from the little research that I did how much he capitulated to that eventually the Monastery of Nancy was sort of made to conform, and they did that through the normal means, uh, depriving their funds, things like that. So uh, just strong-arming them, basically. And so it's unclear to me how much he capitulated to Vatican II, whatever. But what remains is that it was, um, he, he has some very strong words in this book that I think were more or less inspired, wrong word, but motivated from this particular conflict. And so he talks about the fidelity to the religious vows here, and I'm sure he's thinking about all those Dominicans that just walked away from the church when they were given given a chance, so to speak. Sure. And then he talks about, there's one variation um, that's really about the existence of hell, and he talks about that also in confidence. He talks about confidence. But he, he's clearly facing, and I think it's a good context, that's why I mention it for that chapter. Um, he's clearly thinking about those that would say, hell doesn't exist, hell is empty, and he doesn't agree with that at all. And so it's this court sort of pushback against this idea. And it was published in, as I said, the book was published in 1975. That was the center year of that controversy. Interesting. So I think that gives a little bit of context. Also, I... I think some people might read the book and they might read that particular variation and sort of go like, whoa, this is really strong. And it's so strong because he was fighting people in part who were saying, sure. everybody goes to heaven, we don't have to worry about anything. And he saw that as an attack against the true confidence that we should have, which is a confidence in God, in Christ alone. Interesting. So I have to tell a little bit of a story here, Father, because um, when when we did decide at Angelus Press we were going to try to pursue a, an actual published version of this book, you, you and I were having a conversation about it, and of course, um, you, you as a priest and me to a smaller extent with Angelus Press, you know, traditional Catholics love the fight, and it's it's right. important, right. right? That's right. why we publish right. most of what we do, and yeah. why I mean, you were one of the guests on our Crisis podcast series, and you know, you you saw. You know more than most how much uh, you know how much of the fight has to go on, sure. um, and this book is not about the crisis in the church. It's not no, about it's no. not about the new mass. Absolutely it's not. so and but you had made a comment to me something like it's actually 
it's because you know this is really what is most important and the crisis actually makes the spiritual life and our relationship with god actually more important because if we're not all fighting for that exactly. then the fight is actually just just a fight right but, um right. so yeah so you're a traditional catholic you're you're listening to this okay you you're listening to this podcast. You have a sense of the book, but yeah, how would you situate this in the broader set of how do, how does it fit in? Like if you're a, if you're a traditional Catholic and you know that things are bad out there, um, how does this book help? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say, I would say it helps in this way that it's a reminder. Every page of the book, but certain parts of it especially, are a, a reminder to us about um, grace the power of grace, the power of Jesus Christ. And it's something that I think we, um, for whatever reason, we tend to forget. And one of the things he does a very good job at revealing and is to is to basically say, you know, it's as if in some parts of it, I had that sense, you know, I'm being talked to by somebody, mm. you know, and yeah. he, he's trying to get my attention. He's trying to say, look, Jesus Christ is everything. Jesus Christ is our savior. The, the grace of Christ, he, he, you, we don't imagine the beauty of the life that he wants us to lead. We just simply, mm. we, he says one, one part, we don't believe because it's too beautiful. You know, it's too, it's too much. And he mentions the apostles there. He says mm. the apostles, uh, uh, Christ reproves them after his resurrection because they didn't believe in his resurrection. Why didn't they believe? It was too much. It was, it was too great. You know, this, this man, Jesus, is now dead, and we hoped in him, and we thought he was going to be the Savior. But you don't believe that God could bring mm. him to life again, that this resurrected Christ could be really the Savior and God and everything. You see? So I think that um, what I'm getting at here is that the book is a reminder to us that throughout what are we fighting for you know sure. we're, we're fighting for christ and not just christ from the point of view of um obviously the kingship of christ in the world the social life but also what christ means for us which is he's everything and i go back to that quotation of archbishop lefebvre to cardinal ratzinger where archbishop lefebvre said very clearly you know your eminence you don't understand. For us, Jesus Christ is everything. He is the city. He is the state. He is the family. He is mm. the church. He's everything. And I think Father Melinier understands that, and he's trying to tell that to individual souls. You know, you're in the midst of this fight. Things are falling apart around you. Everything's a disaster. That's a great situation to be in because now Christ can save you, and that's what he wants to do. And how can he save yeah. you? We don't know, but it's going to be something fantastic. It's going to be something that you cannot even imagine. The greatness of this salvation is something we can't wrap our minds around the infinite, but hmm. he is infinite, grace is infinite, and it's there, it's in our hands, you know? Every, you receive wow. the Eucharist. And again, he, he, he insists on that too about this, this, may, this term may scare some people when, he's, when, when you say something like the mystical life, you think about, these saints that are confirmed in holiness and everything. Sure. But he says, if you don't believe in the mystical life, if you don't believe that the mystical life is for everybody, then stop receiving communion. <laughs> because wow. there's nothing in the mystical life that's more intimate than communion. And that's just wow. a, that's a reminder we need. You know, yeah. I receive communion every day. But what does that mean? It means that Christ wants to be so intimately united with me that he becomes my, my daily bread, my food. And if we don't believe in that, then yeah. we're missing out. 
and he, he says again to um, you know Christians, Catholics, where they're ready to run, but they're not ready to fly. But hmm. Christ wants you to fly. You know, Christ wants you to just take off on this great adventure, leave all things and follow me. It's it's there in the gospel. You know, he's trying to bring that to the fore and say, this is what we're offered, and this is what we have to believe in. And even in the midst of this. Um, terrible crisis in the church, terrible fight. At the end of the day, it's what Archbishop Lefebvre said, do we believe in Jesus Christ? Do we believe in what he has to offer? And even in the midst of the ruins, can he fly? Can he mm. set the world afire with that, the fire that he's come to cast on the earth? Can he do that? And if he can't, we made a mistake, you know, something's there, there's, wrong. There's no deep to he launch can. into. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He can, that's um, the whole point, so. Well, I don't know if there's a better way to conclude than what you just said, but I will put you on the spot practically. If if uh, if you have a favorite passage, um, you yeah. know, we've talked a lot about how, how unique the book is, and we've talked about the variations, but is there a passage that strikes you? Can can you read? Is there a favorite? I mean, I just want to give people an example uh, yeah, you know, of, of the way that please things do. are phrased in the book. Um, you sometimes have to think about even like the title. So one of the things that struck me, for whatever reason, obedience the folly that protects wisdom yeah and at first well i could interpret that and i'm not sure what that means actually right, I, right. Now, I have to now read and think about it but he has a way of grabbing your attention and, and putting things in a way that you've never at least for me like i've never thought about that like yes like that I, yes I, and so it gives and that's why i mentioned earlier like it's is, is this a book that you're supposed to just read cover to cover to me right, it's of um course. Uh, so yeah, if you have a favorite passage and you want to read a paragraph or two, sure. maybe, maybe that's a good I, way to conclude. I, um, <laughs> I, I have a passage in mind, um, and I, I did mark it actually because I did want to highlight it. Yeah. So I will read that, but I will say it's hard for me now to sort of choose a favorite because sure. there are different points in the book. As with any book, you sure. get more impressive things and more yeah. more regular things, but there are a number of passages in this book that have really for me personally, I've really gone home. Um, and uh, so I'll, I'll mention one of them that I think really struck me. Okay. And it's right in the beginning. So um, we're in this, um, just the second variation, which he calls law and grace. And he's making a distinction in that chapter, um, in that variation that I think is very important. I okay. mentioned naturalism, that kind of thing. And he's talking about the law and he's saying, what, what do we mean by the law? And a lot of people, he said, think we mean just maybe just the Mosaic law when we contrast, right. when St. Paul contrasts the law and grace. Do we mean the Mosaic law, all of these different, do we mean the traditions of the, sure. of the Pharisees and sure. that kind of thing? And he wants to get us away from that. And he wants to get us to see that there's a law of our nature. We are made by God for God. And even the very depths of our nature um, are, we could say, is oriented to God mm. and desires to be with God. It's a point actually that's very theological. St. Okay. Thomas Aquinas will talk about it. And he'll ask that, I have to mention this question Please. because Please. I know Father Molinier is thinking about it when he writes okay. this. Um, St. Thomas says, asks this really strange question when you first read it, and he says, um, by nature do creatures love God above all things? Mm. And when you first read that, you think to yourself, okay, right away, no, right? Because right. that's charity's job, to love God above all things. But St. Thomas will answer in the article very clearly say, yes, by nature, creatures love God above all things. And you say, well, wait a minute, 
because what's the point yeah. of grace, right? But he, he points out the whole natural order is created by God, and God is the, the, the master of that order and the, the end, the goal of that order. The whole order is directed to God. And so by their very nature, creatures are tending to God. What happened? Well, sin. Sin came in, man sure. chose another end, broke the natural order, not completely, but yeah. um, we have these wounds then sure. of the natural order. So our nature is, if you want, at one and the same time, um, desirous of God and moving towards him and unable to attain him because of sin, because of original sin. So mm. that's what we say in the, um, the way that theologians express it. Well, they, they'll say, you know, nature is um, wounded, but ultimately intact. It's not destroyed, as the Protestants might say. So sure. that's a little bit of the background. So Father Melania is reminding us of that truth here and say, our nature desires God, but we, we're trapped in this disobedience of sin. We cannot get out just as and when we want. We have to have grace, the gratia sanans, the healing yeah, like, grace that's going to first heal nature and then elevate it. Because, and that's why charity is going to build on nature but go much further than nature. So not only do you love God above all things, but you love Father, Son, and Holy Ghost the way Father, Son, and Holy Ghost love each other. That's grace, right? So grace is going to heal nature and then elevate it. Hmm. So he's making that point here, and then he comes with this um, passage, and it's it's hard not to read all of it, but I'll read some of it. And um, Sure. And he, so he says, um, he comes to talk finally about grace in the, in the variation, and he says, well, um, what about those who are trying to practice the law of their nature? And we see that in this world. So many philanthropic efforts, oh, sure. so many things where just, you know, be nice to people, be great. And we look at the, the, the Protestants, the, the um, other religions even that yeah. talk about these things. And Father Melania's point is saying that's not, it's not that that's bad, but that's nature. We can't be saved by nature alone. We need Jesus Christ, mm. right? We need a savior. So he says that, and, and he, he points out um, this distinction. So here, I'll read it. So he says, in saying this, we do not wish to cast anathemas on those who have not yet understood completely. To those who try to practice the law, so who try to do what nature sure. pushes them to, Christ does not say that they are lost. On the contrary, he says to them, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. What is still wanting to me? Follow me. And he takes that actually from the passage in Mark where, where Christ is talking to the young man who wants to be perfect. What must I do? You know, mm -hmm. One thing is wanting still to you, follow me. This response is extraordinary. What is necessary is not to acquire something or to do this or that, but to follow someone. This turns every perspective upside down. You plan your trip and your life according to a certain program, according to a rule that matches your own principles and convictions. All of this is the law. And then someone bursts in and overturns everything. In the name of authority, or in the name of love, which is worse, he asks you simply to do something else. Not something hard, just something else. The law of the person replaces the law of the object. A person is living and unpredictable. You cannot foresee the day before what he will ask of you the day after. This is why we must not overly attach ourselves even to what Christ asks of us, since we cannot foresee what he will ask of us tomorrow. It may be exactly the contrary of what he asks of us today. 
consider the sacrifice of Abraham. Fundamentally, in everything he asks of us, Jesus asks only flexibility, the flexibility to follow him. Him is the world of friendship. It is no longer only love, but friendship, which is to say a life for two. We are trapped in disobedience and we can only get out if we follow the Savior. And then this last part, this is exactly what I'm coming to. We wonder how to solve the modern world. We have all kinds of questions. I feel like answering, there is no solution. There is only the Savior. There is nothing to do except follow the Savior. Do today what he asks today and do tomorrow what he asks tomorrow. And I can tell you right away the first thing he is going to do, save you. Wow. So that passage for me, I mean, it really went home because I think that's a lot of the case where we are today. If we are, you know, priests, religious, uh, but also lay people trying sure. to work for the restoration of the kingship of Christ, we have all kinds of questions. We wonder sure. how to solve the modern world. And Father Melania is saying, it's, there is no solution. <laughs> There's no solution, but there is a Savior. <laughs> and so follow the Savior. Yeah. Again. This is this is a great example of something that you really at least I need to I need to process. I think yeah, this is something and, yeah, we have to think and think about. So, yeah. um, so I'm about to to give the practical pitch side of this. You know how people great. can get sure. the book because I hope at this point everybody would like to get a copy of the Courage to Be Afraid. But I do. Uh, I'm sure we'll do a nicer version of this. But it, is there a symbolism to the icon? So the icon. Of, yeah. And we'll we'll do a nicer version of this, but. Uh, you know, it's it's the famous. There are variations on, on a theme here. Right. It's, it's our Lord upon the water. Yeah. You know, um, it's Peter. Right. And so, uh, is there a symbolism? Because we, we you were part of that conversation. You know, what, right. what are we going to put what on the gonna, cover? Yeah. So, uh, is there any? Do you want to say a few words just about what, why, how, how that relates to the book? It's not just the pretty icon that we put on. Yes. The cover. Yes. So. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And I think I think that there's a there's a lot in this cover that. Um, I thought about when I when I thought about this as maybe a good a good way to go. Um, the iconography just tends to be very depictive of mm-hmm. of what's going on without focusing too much on uh, let's say over real overly realistic details sure. of the persons. And so mm-hmm. I feel that this icon just focuses on the event that's going on. So of course the passage. Um, Christ is walking on the waters. The disciples see him. They're afraid. He says, fear not, it's I. St. Peter says, if it's you, Lord, command me to come to you on the water. And so that initial generosity of Peter that's there, we might say a certain natural generosity that Mm. Peter had that needs to be, let's say, uh, brought through the crucible, um, Mm. needs to be purified of too much nature, fallen nature. So perhaps some pride in that. I'm Peter. I'm going to go to Christ on the water. Nevertheless, his request is granted by Christ. Mm-hmm. He says, "Come." Peter walks out to him. But then the wind, and the and the and the waves and the storm are are strong. Peter turns away from Christ in some sense. It's different how you mm-hmm. want to interpret this. But he turns away from Christ. He sees those things and he becomes afraid. And because he becomes afraid, he begins then to sink. And that's when Jesus Christ reaches out to grab hold of him and to save him. And actually, Peter calls out, save me, Lord, I perish. And Christ lifts him up and then also says to him, why did you doubt, you know? <laughs> you, yeah. Why do you, you, you little, little faith? Mm. And so I, I think there are two ways you can kind of take that with regard to the book. The first way is that precisely 
what happens when Peter sinks is what we have to do. We have to cry out to our Savior. And when that cry comes from our heart, when it comes really from our, the depths of our soul, we might say, Christ cannot refuse such a prayer, and he will act. He will save us from what it is that we are um, in danger of. The other way to look at that is the faith of Peter that, and the generosity of Peter that needs to be purified. And this event, Christ knows well that he's going to use this event to help purify the faith of Peter. It's good that Peter comes to Christ on the water, but perhaps it's too much from a natural basis, too much from a desire of, of pride, which is from fallen nature. And that's why Peter can't stand when sure. the waves come up. And so he needs there, Peter needs maybe a little bit more fear at the beginning and a little oh, bit more courage when he's there out on the water. But the courage needs to be a courage to be afraid. So to realize he's not able of himself to stand, but Christ can do it with him, right? So that's, those okay. are some of my thoughts behind the cover. No, that's that's very helpful, and uh, I'll just I'll conclude just by saying that uh, you know I've I've been working here in Angelus Press for eighteen years, and um, there are a lot of reasons actually that this book uh, should not have worked out in the way that it did. You know, even <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to get into yeah. too many of the details, like yeah. even acquiring the rights and things yeah, like right, that. Right, right. But um, the the fact that it does exist is only because uh, whether it's you know, the Father, Father Melinier's history you were talking about, the amount of time that you put into it, Father LaRue, Grant, I mean, it's there, there are so many ways where this project could have fallen through the cracks or just Absolutely. never never happened. Right, um, right. But the fact that it has happened and everything that you've just said means that um, there's, there's something providential about this book. I have nothing to add to what you said, but... For everyone uh, listening or watching, uh, it's on the Angelus Press website. You can call us at our 800 number. It's 800-966-7337. If you're in the St. Mary's area, we have it in the bookstore. Um, I don't don't have anything else to add to what Father said. Do you have any any last words here, Father, or is it? I think think we said it, yeah. And I think um, I would just encourage people to give it a chance if they read it. Take your time, um, go slowly, persevere through the first bits. I, I think many, many people, I've met a lot of people as a sure. priest now, I think many people can benefit from this. And right. if, if you start reading it and you get stuck and, well, put it aside for a little bit, pick it up a little bit later, okay. I think there's something in this for, for just about everybody. Very good. Thank you, Father. Thanks, and Jim. not just for today, thank you for the immense amount of, uh, of time that went into this over, over the span of, I think we can legitimately say years, years went yeah, into this. Yeah, four years, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you, Father. Great. Okay. Right. Thanks, Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to or watching the SSPX podcast. Please keep in mind the best way to help more people see these videos and to hear this podcast is to subscribe on YouTube or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and rate or review wherever you listen. Also, please remember this is an apostolate. It's free to listen or to watch anytime, but we also need your help. Would you please consider submitting a one-time donation or sign up for a small $5, $10, or $20 a month donation at sspxpodcast.com? This helps us to continue this important work of sharing the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism with as many people as possible. Until next time, thank you for listening, and God bless you.